And if you would, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Tonight we're going to be considering a beautiful moment in the Davidic kingship. And it's one of those passages that often gets mistreated. As folks miss the forest for a single tree, it's one of those passages that typically gets treated as a text teaching us to be kind to the needy or to be merciful towards our enemies, which are certainly trees among this particular forest, but it is preeminently, I think, a text that is about Christ and his gospel. Preeminently, it is a beautiful typological text with great significance. And so tonight we'll consider the whole of 2 Samuel chapter 9, and as with any one-off sermon, we'll have to take some time to look through the context, as with any sermon, especially in the middle of a narrative that spans multiple books. So I'll begin by reading the passage, and then we will briefly review some of the Saul and David story to set the stage for the chapter that we're considering. So by way of an outline, I just have two points for us tonight. The first is an enemy household, and the second is the kindness of God. An enemy household And the kindness of God. So look with me at 2 Samuel 9. We'll read it and then I'll pray. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that it may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Gracious God in heaven, there is none like you in heaven above or on earth below. For you alone are God, the creator and sustainer of all things. And to you alone belong all glory, honor, majesty, and dominion. We thank you for this Lord's Day and the privilege of coming together this evening to sit under your word, to sing, and to pray together. We thank you for your Son, whom you've given to us in the abundance of your steadfast love and faithfulness. We ask that you would bless the preaching of the word, that your name would be exalted in our midst, and that you would cause us to know the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Now, before arriving at this point in the text, David has already seen a great deal of persecution, a great deal of loss. I'm sure you're well aware of the tumultuous relationship between David and King Saul through 1 Samuel, but let's do a very brief review. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel demanded a king, which marks the transition from the time of judges to the time of kings. And while Samuel warned them, they refused his warning, and therefore God granted Israel's request, giving them Saul. Then as early as chapter 15, the Lord rejects Saul for his disobedience. And David, the shepherd boy, the son of Jesse, is anointed future king. And David has immediately shown the favor of God over the enemies of Israel in his defeat of Goliath. And from 1 Samuel chapter 18 until Saul's death in 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul's jealous rampage is on full display. David was constantly fleeing from the persecution of Saul, from dwelling in caves to hiding among foreigners in enemy territory. The newly anointed king seemed to know no rest from the hands of the wicked. Many of David's psalms of lament are actually written in the time frame between 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel 31. In fact, you'll even remember the two instances that Saul's life is presented to David as though on a silver platter, and David refuses to take his life. In the cave of Adullam and in the wilderness of Ziph, Saul was actively seeking to murder David, and neither time David acted on the opportunity to silence his enemy. Each time, David showed him mercy. And as David continued to flee, he waited on the kind and gracious providence of the Lord to act. Then Saul and his sons die in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And how does David respond? 2 Samuel chapter 1, it records David's lament. He weeps at the death of the man who sought his life for years, and especially over the death of his beloved friend, Jonathan. Saul's son, who was like a brother to him. And then in 2 Samuel 2 through chapter 8, bringing us to our text tonight, we see the kindness of God towards David in his victory and deliverance from his enemies, in the restoration of worship in Jerusalem as the ark comes back to Jerusalem, and then to the glorious promise that's made to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he should bear a son whose kingdom and throne would be everlasting. And after the thoroughly recorded evidence of God's blessing and favor towards David, we come to this beautiful picture of gospel grace recorded for us in chapter 9. 
Look with me again at verses 1 through 5, and we'll consider our first point, an enemy household. Start with verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so David's found himself settled on the throne, experiencing the blessings of God as king over Israel and Judah. And the question that he asks in verse 1 should really come as a shock to us, because it certainly would have been a shock to his hearers. He's asking to show kindness to a rival household, to the household of his enemy and the previous household of the throne. And historically, we've seen in places like Judges chapter 9 or in 2 Chronicles 22, that when a new ruler is established, there was often an immediate response of the new ruler to seek out the previous household to ensure that there were no challengers to the seat of authority. And they'd put to death every remaining member of the previous household to make sure that there are no challengers. Yet here is David, again comfortably situated on the throne, experiencing the blessings of God, finally free from the tyranny of the previous king. And he's seeking any last members of that household to show kindness to them. Hearing David firsthand, one might have wondered if this was sort of an underhanded way to get the remaining members of Saul's house to come before him, to come before the throne in order to save him the trouble of seeking them out in order that he might kill them on the spot. As though it was some sort of clever tact of David. But that was not the case. The text doesn't just tell us that he wanted to show him kindness without cause. He wanted to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, I just mentioned that that Jonathan, the son of Saul, was a beloved friend of David. In 1 Samuel 18 and verse 3, it said that he loved him as he loved his own soul. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 3 through 17, we see the record of this covenant that David cuts with Jonathan. That after David's enemies were defeated, he would not cut off his steadfast love from the house of Jonathan or the house of Saul. You see, David isn't concerned about an enemy usurping the throne. He's concerned about keeping covenant faithfulness with his friend Jonathan. Even if that faithfulness is shown to his greatest enemy's household. Look with me again at verses 2 through 3. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now David goes as far as to find and call Ziba, a servant of Saul, in order to find the remaining family of Saul. And this is the first time that we're hearing about Ziba because he isn't mentioned at any point in the narrative yet. But we can gather that it's probably likely that he had some seat of prominence in Saul's house that he might know the whereabouts of the remaining grandson, Mephibosheth. And in God's providence, the remaining member of that household, which was once great, is now one crippled son of his beloved friend, Jonathan. And this isn't the first time, though, that we've heard of Mephibosheth in the narrative. He's mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 4, after word came to the rest of the family that Saul and his sons had died at Hebron. 
And it's mentioned that he was five years old at the time. And when the news came to the family that Saul and his sons had died in war, his nurse took him to flee quickly, probably under the assumption that his life was now in danger. And in her fleeing, Mephibosheth falls and injures himself. This is the point at which he becomes crippled in his feet, five years old. And so we have this grandson of a king, the son of a prince who has been crippled since he was five years old, entirely dependent on the care of others. And they didn't have wheelchairs, as I know you know, in the 10th century before Christ. So it's likely that he would have been carried from place to place. Mephibosheth spent basically the whole of his life, as far as he remembers it, in utter helplessness. As a member of a royal household, he would have had servants who would respond to his every beck and call, who would give him whatever it was that he needed and take him wherever it was that he needed to go. But that household had come to an end. And he was now like a poor beggar or a dead dog, as he goes on to call himself. And he is all who remains. Now, it's easy to have some sympathy for Mephibosheth. Thinking about a five-year-old experiencing a debilitating accident affecting them for the rest of their lives is devastating enough. But to think about this all happening while the news is coming to the rest of the family that his dad and his grandfather and his uncles had all died in war is far more devastating. My daughter turns five next week, and I can't even begin to fathom what that would be like. I refuse to even think about that happening to her. But David isn't moved by pity. David isn't moved by sympathy. Had he not asked, he would have been blissfully unaware of Mephibosheth's position. And that doesn't mean that he didn't have sympathy once Mephibosheth came before him, but that isn't the motivating factor. The bottom line is that nothing about Mephibosheth moves David to act. David is moved by covenant faithfulness. He's moved by steadfast love and the promise that he made to his friend Jonathan. And in verse 3, David repeats his question to Ziba, yet with the added language. First he asks for anyone left of the household of Saul that he might show kindness to them. And then he adds, or further spells it out, that he wants to show him the kindness of God. And the language that he uses here is loaded language. I won't get into the nuance of it, but I will say that the same word that's used for kindness here in the ESV, that we translate or have translated for kindness, is more often, and especially so in the Psalms, more often translated with a covenant connotation. It's translated as steadfast love, mercy, and loving kindness. The word is richly covenantal. And usually with respect to God's covenant faithfulness, God's tender mercy, and God's kindness towards us. David doesn't just want to show him some generic sort of kindness as some sort of clever political move to show that he is a good and benevolent king. David wants to show him the kindness and mercy of God. Look on to verses 4 through 5 again with me. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. 
Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And so Ziba tells David that the crippled grandson of his enemy now lives in a place called Lodabar, in the house of a man named Machir, the son of Amiel. Machir comes up later in the narrative, and he proves to be a friend of the king. And he's portrayed here, obviously, as a kind and gracious man, that he'd be willing to take in the crippled grandson of a shattered kingdom. But Lodabar means without pasture. And I think this is intentional language. Not that Lodabar isn't a real place, but that it also is significant of the state, the desolate state of Mephibosheth. It's as if he has no place to feed, which I think you'll see even more clearly in our second point. So let me conclude the first point by saying this. Apart from the covenant that David cut with Jonathan, David was in no way obligated to show kindness to his enemy's household. In fact, to the ancient reader, this would have been incredibly strange to do. Mephibosheth was a crippled, orphaned grandson to the previous rival king, to a wicked king. Mephibosheth was destitute, without hope, and stripped of the dignity of the royal household to which he once belonged. He was justifiably considered an enemy to the throne of David, and David called for him. David called for him that he might show him the steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, the kindness of God. So let's now consider that kindness in our second point. Look again with me at verses 6 through 8. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I can't help but wonder what Mephibosheth thought in this moment. His belonging to an enemy household is reiterated as he comes before the throne of God's anointed king. And he falls on his face to pay homage. Be reminded, though, that he's crippled in his feet. So to fall on his face likely places him in such a place of vulnerability that he's unable to get back up without help. It's almost as if he falls and says, Behold, I am your servant, in order to say, I have no intentions of getting back up again. Because I know what I'm here for. Because of David's first three words in verse 7, he says, Do not fear. I am convinced that Mephibosheth had no intention of getting back up. He knew that Mephibosheth was afraid of the king. Again, thinking about what was customary for the previous royal household to the enemies coming before the king, I'm convinced that Mephibosheth thought that he came before the king to die. He knew his estate. He knew the wickedness of his house. Even if he had no intentions of standing against the throne of the king, he knew that it was probably right and likely that he would die in this place. And he fell on his face. 
as if to say, here is my head. Yet what does David say? He says, do not fear. I will show you kindness, covenant faithfulness, steadfast love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you all of the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. This should astonish us. David isn't just withholding judgment from his enemy. He's restoring fortune. He's granted him a permanent seat at the king's table. This is another one of those things that I don't think culturally we quite grasp either. It's no small thing to be invited to dine with another. Sure, I think that we have some faint understanding of the significance of sharing a meal together. It's reserved for the intimacy of family and close friends. You aren't as comfortable ordinarily going and finding a stranger on the street and saying, hey, come into my home and have dinner with me and my family. You get to know a person around the dinner table, and there's a certain vulnerability about sharing a meal with another. But in the ancient Near East, it's far greater than that. Hospitality was vitally important in their culture, and to share a meal with one was a high honor and a sign of peace, and even more so to dine with a king. Think about it like this. If you were invited to have dinner with your favorite U.S. president in history, that single event would be astonishing to you. Note that I've intentionally given you the privilege of choosing what president that you would have dinner with. But what business do any of us have to sit at the dining room table of the White House? Most of us are ordinary folks. We have no right, no reason to be sharing the table with a person or a household of great importance. Yet here is Mephibosheth, crippled and destitute, no longer of any significance, no longer of any importance, yet he's found a place at King David's table always for the sake of covenant faithfulness and loving kindness. And his very response acknowledged that he knew this was astounding mercy. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? The king's lavish kindness continues, though, in verses 9 through 13. Look there with me. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now we have some expanding and some reiteration here of what's being gifted and 
graced to Mephibosheth in this moment. The king tells Ziba that he promised Mephibosheth and includes the fact that Ziba and his household shall now serve him all the days of his life. He will no longer dwell in the land without pasture. He will no longer dwell in Lodabar, in a stranger's home, but will be restored all of his grandfather's land and even servants to till and keep the land for him. There shall never be a day that Mephibosheth goes hungry. He's been shown an overabundance of grace. Bread in the land and a permanent seat at the king's table. Ziba says to David that he will do all that's been commanded. And then at the third mention of Mephibosheth eating at the king's table, it says in verse 11 that he ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I mentioned at the start that this text is preeminently a text about the gospel. A text with beautiful typological significance, ultimately pointing to Christ, David's son, yet David's Lord, the Christ that was just promised again in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Friends, do you not see it? A crippled man, stripped of his dignity, belonging to an empty enemy household, left to die in a land where there is no pasture. Once the son of a prince and now a dead dog, Mephibosheth is a picture of all of fallen humanity. Mephibosheth is a picture of us in our sins. In our sins, we are lame. We are crippled, even dead. We who bear the image of God have fallen in our father, Adam. We have no right to come before the throne of the king, let alone to dine at his table. Yet the king has sent for us his enemies, and rather than gathering us together to be burnt up like chaff in the fire of his wrath, he has poured out covenant kindness upon us. He has lavished grace and mercy upon us. It is we who should fall before the throne of grace, the throne of the king, never intending to stand back up again because we know our sinful estate. And there, and there alone, find the grace of God poured out for us in Christ. Oh, that we would know the immeasurable, unfathomable, inestimable love of God. We who were his enemies have been brought near. We who were his enemies by Jesus' merit and mediation have been called sons and daughters of the living God, having a permanent seat at his table forever as co-heirs with Christ. You who have looked to Christ in faith have been given an eternal seat And this is because of his steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. Not because of anything in you. Not because of anything that you have done. All of this is because of his free grace and mercy. Oh, that you would know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. We were enemies of the kingdom of God. But according to the riches of his mercy, he promised to send Christ to die for our sins and rise for our justification, and he has. There is no greater reward. There is no greater inheritance. There is no greater comfort in life or in death. My prayer for you is that you would go on day by day to marvel at this glorious gospel. And at the story of Mephibosheth, you would see the gracious provision of the king of glory in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ for weak and weary sinners. Know the steadfast love and covenant faithfulness of God and cleave, cleave to Jesus. There is no greater inheritance. Listen to the blessing of this gracious adoption which we have received in Christ in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive redemption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May this grace never cease to astound you. May this grace never cease to amaze you. Let me pray. O oh, Father of mercy, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our even continued sins, you have graciously sought us. You have given your son to take on flesh, to live the righteous life that we failed to and could never live, and to die the death that we deserved under your infinite just wrath, rising again on the third day, conquering sin and death, that we might ascend into heaven with him and be seated at the right hand of the throne of God as co-heirs with Christ. Father, thank you. We praise your holy name and we pray that it be magnified in our midst, not only today, not only on Easter Sunday, not only every Lord's Day, but every day. O oh God, be merciful to us. Cause us to know that which is unfathomable, namely the infinite and perfect love of God in Christ Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.